situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beat for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Me. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans bomb Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my winner. Though things have gotten a little better for the St. Louis Cardinals over the past week or so, we are looking at a once proud, probably one of the most esteemed and respected franchises and well-run organizations in the entirety of sports history going through a rough patch and actually looking like the opposite of that in regards to the handling of the situation with Wilson Contreras behind the plate as the catcher. Wilson Contreras, of course, to clip notes, five-year contract he signed as a free agent from the Chicago Cubs, is taking over from a no-doubt first-ballot Hall of Famer, eventually, once he's eligible, and Yadier Molina. Led the team to two World Series championships, Molina did. And obviously the expectation is whoever's going to take over for one of the greatest defensive catchers to ever play Major League Baseball, it's going to be a tall order. And I've said all along, when it comes to legends, when it comes to greats, you don't want to be the person that takes over for the great. You want to be the person that takes over for the person that took over for the great. Because the standards and the expectations are going to be so high. And I think there's an element of this that hasn't been discussed enough is the burden that Wilson Contreras or whoever was going to be the next St. Louis Cardinals catcher was going to have to try to be Yadier Molina. Now, the issue here really coming out is the handling of this situation by the St. Louis Cardinals, which was very poor. And it's something that's unexpected, like I said, from an organization that goes back to the days of um, August Bush and Branch Rickey and all the positivity of the well-run organization that the St. Louis Cardinals have been, they they had a bad moment here. Now, I'm glad to see Contreras is back behind the plate where he should be. I'm glad that there is a relationship there between him and the pitchers. They have to understand that things are going to be a little bit different when somebody's catching them that's not named Yadier Molina. So that's number one. I think that's pretty pretty much loud and clear spoken about. Hopefully, uh, Cardinals are off to a very bad start or playing a little bit better baseball. And I expect them to at least be in the mix to, to, to right the ship because the Cardinals are too well-run of an organization but also have too much talent to sit there and be in the doldrums of what I believe is still a weak National League Central division. Are the Pirates going to win the division? Hey, they're, they're off to a good start. Are the Brewers going to win that division? Are the Cincinnati Reds a little better than people thought? Maybe. This all could be true. But at the same time, the St. Louis Cardinals are still the St. Louis Cardinals, an organization that I'm certainly not quitting on right now. Now, Tim Anderson is the shortstop for the Chicago White Sox. And there was a video, or I don't know, like a little snippet of perhaps him saying, I hate something. It looked like he said, I hate the pitch clock. But... You know, the narrative that has been out there is to try to knock Tim Anderson. And I'm wondering if it is racially motivated. Now, if you look at a player like Tim Anderson, who I think feels the burden of being one of the few or the low percentage of African-American players playing in baseball, you do you do feel that. If you're 
such a small group of an entirety, I feel like it's it's something that you're going to let get to your head. So do I think Tim Anderson maybe shows it a little more than others? Maybe in some cases you'd want to just see Tim Anderson, the baseball player, not Tim Anderson trying to say, hey, I'm the next Jackie Robinson, which I don't believe he said in, in those words. But the more you kind of follow this guy, the more you realize that there is some sort of national bias against Tim Anderson. And all he wants to do is go out there and play baseball. And it, did he say, I hate this place? It looks like he could have said, I hate the pitch clock. And I, you know, as I'm reading his lips a little bit better than I believe most do, it looks like he didn't say, I hate this place. But if there's a narrative against somebody, you're going to find the extreme and find the worst thing that somebody could have possibly said. And even, even if he did, you know, if he hates this place, hey, maybe he hates baseball, maybe he hates the White Sox. Jose Abreu standing there right next to him, agreeing with him. And Jose Abreu, obviously a, a legend in the Chicago White Sox community, I believe is number 79 at some point, should be retired amongst the Chicago White Sox greats. Obviously now playing for the Houston Astros. You know, whatever it was, Jose Abreu agreed with him. And nobody has an issue with that. So once again, when it comes to race in baseball, and once again, baseball is still a white man's game. And you know, you obviously see a, a great influx of Latin and, you know, even, you know, Asian stars, whether it's from Japan and Korea and stuff like that, that it's, it's more of a melting pot than it's been before. But if you're looking at the amount of blacks that are playing Major League Baseball, and once again, you know, it's not a matter of why or how. The fact needs to be reported. And, you know, Tim Anderson has faced an awful lot of scrutiny for being a minority in the sport. I wanted to speak a little bit about Eric Hosmer. DFA'd by the Chicago Cubs almost is a completely unwanted commodity as it comes to Major League Baseball right now. And you're looking at a player that signed a big eight-year contract with the San Diego Padres and for the rest of his playing career or maybe the rest of his life, he is going to be known for signing that contract. And that's you know, kind, kind, of, kind of silly because... He, he's the one that signed the contract. It was obviously very lucrative for, for him. If you were in that situation, you would have done the same thing too. It's the San Diego Padres that overpaid. And the San Diego Padres decided at some point that Hosmer was not the answer for their attempts to win a World Series championship. They added Juan Soto, obviously, to signing of Xander Bogarts in this past offseason. You know they're going for it. But at some point determined that Hosmer was not the dude. So they had a right to basically pay the contract and pay him to not play for the San Diego Padres. They tried to trade him to the Washington Nationals in a Juan Soto trade, which Hosmer had the right to reject that trade. They ended up dealing him to the Boston Red Sox pretty much the next day. And the Red Sox, who got him for the league minimum, decided in the offseason that he wasn't a fit there. Now, you keep hearing that Eric Hosmer is a good clubhouse guy. Well, you know, would, wouldn't that be something that Boston needed? You know, for somebody to just take it some at-bats, maybe a DH, a little bit of first base. I don't know, maybe you dust the glove off in the outfield and you put him out there as a little bit of a utility player. A guy for that's not being expected to be a regular for you. If he's such a good clubhouse guy, then why didn't Boston hold on to him? I understood why San Diego moved on from him. But Boston released him in the offseason, or they, they DFA'd him. The Cubs, who brought him in in a team that's looking to kind of turn the corner. Maybe there's 
not enough at-bats available for him, they decide to DFA him right here. Now, you keep hearing Eric Hosmer's a good clubhouse guy. I'm watching, like I said, I'm not holding the Padres situation against them, but I'm watching in Boston and at a Cubs. All right, is he pushing for more playing time than he's getting and maybe causing a disruption there? Or number two, is he just not that really good teammate that people have made him out to be? Now, you look at the NBA, the final four teams that are available. You got the Denver Nuggets and the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics and the Miami Heat. You still have two of the the, the two most esteemed franchises in the history of the National Basketball Association with 17 championships apiece with the Celtics and the Lakers. You got the Miami Heat and Eric Spolstra and Jimmy Butler and their three NBA championships that Butler has not won yet. And then the Denver Nuggets with the best player in the sport in Nikola Jokic as they seek their first NBA championship. Now, you know, I, I feel like both of these series are going to go pretty deep. I think the Miami Heat all along have been underrated. You're looking at a team that is pretty much at the top of the conference each of the last several seasons. And they kind of waddled their way into the playoffs with the number eight seed. They're every bit as good as the other three teams that are here. And, you know, the couple wins that they had on the road in Boston is showing that. Maybe they're on their way to the NBA Finals. The Denver Nuggets, you know that uh, I've been a big proponent of Nikola Jokic. I think that if he wins an NBA championship, you got to start talking about him amongst the most dominating players to play in a National Basketball Association. And obviously you have LeBron James. I'm always going to root for LeBron uh, to me, the best player to ever play in NBA history. Jordan's got to be there. But, you know, LeBron really is the um, is the, uh, the staple of a person that just goes out there and just plays all the time. There's no low management with him. He has never stepped away from the basketball at any point of his career. He's gone out there and competed. He's competed in tough environments like Los Angeles in a situation this year where they had Russell Westbrook and Patrick Beverly, and this is a team that didn't look like it was well-constructed. And general manager Mitch Kupchak went out there and made some moves and brought in different players, and now LeBron's leading them. The, the Lakers are, are a great story for basketball this year. I know they're one of the more hated teams in sports, but I can't help but root for LeBron. And then there's the Celtics. You got to start talking about uh, Jason Tatum's place as one of the top players in the game. You know the Celtics probably have the deepest team left in the, in the postseason. I'm hoping to see a couple seven-game series because I think there's a lot of good basketball that we get the opportunity to see. Part of me says, hey, I'd like to see Jokic and Denver get their first championship. But man, be nice to see LeBron win as well. And we have to start out today's Saving Sports History segment with a little bit of a somber note. Of course, all-time great running back for the Cleveland Browns, Jim Brown, passed away. And you're thinking about the dominance that he had over a very brief time in the National Football League. And he was negotiating a contract with Art Modell, and he decided rather than... Um, you know, rather than play another season in the NFL, he went into acting. At the time that he decided to walk away, he was reading some lines for a movie and it was delaying his entrance into training camp. And the owner kind of gave him a hard time. He said, you know what? I'm not going to risk my body. I'm not going to risk my health anymore 
there's plenty more that I have to accomplish over the course of my life. And Jim Brown was able to do that, not just as an actor, obviously not just as an athlete, but as, as a very good uh, activist, as a very, uh, very good representation of um, equal rights. And it was just a tremendous, you know, force. And you think of Jim Brown, and you just think of his, uh, to me, his intelligence to walk away from the National Football League at the age of 30. Because you see a lot of players do that now, and it's kind of become, all right, well, you know, we know how violent the NFL is. You know how violent, you know, the physical contact and the demanding nature, concussions, you know, the Will Smith movie, everything that's, that's come in, into light within the last 20, 30 years. You understand why players walk away now. Jim Brown didn't, you know, was able to see that at age 30, by the way, in the 1960s. That's a long time from now. Football grew to be the dominant sport with the Super Bowl and the whole thing. He retired right before the first Super Bowl. So, you know, a, a championship running back, a intelligent dude, had an incredible life. And I can't name another running back in National Football League history going back to the year of 1920 that was any more dominant than Jim Brown. He's number one. Not number one because he's deceased. Number one because, dude, he led the league in rushing all but one of his seasons. Was the most dominant force in a game. You know, you want to say Emmitt Smith was good. You want to say Barry Sanders was good. You want to say uh, Walter Payton was good. Those are the other three that I have in the mix. You know, I look at Lenny Moore in a, a different NFL um, even though he played around the same time as Jim Brown, you know, it was kind of used differently, but it was very, very dominant. Gail Sayers, of course. And you think, of course, of some of, some of the backs that came after that, whether it's uh, uh, Tony Dorsett. There's some really good running backs to play in the NFL. Listen, you could bring the best of the best, put it right up to the table. You're not going to be able to beat the dominance of Jim Brown, and he's certainly going to be missed. So today, on is the uh, 20th day of May 2023. Things that happened in the history of sports during today's Saving Sports History segment. 1964, Buster Mathis wins the U.S. Qualifying Olympic Boxing Championship or to qualify for the Olympics over Joe Frazier. What stands out about this, and you'd say, who, who the hell is Buster Mathis? Who the hell cares that he beat Joe Frazier in his Olympic qualifying tournament? Now, Mathis injured his thumb and was unable to participate, even though he had beat Frazier to qualify. Frazier ends up going in as a replacement and wins the gold medal. Pretty freaking cool. 1972, the Indiana Pacers won the ABA championship with a victory over the, the New Jersey Nets, four games to two. 1978, Steve Cawthon, uh, aboard the horse Affirmed, ends up winning the second leg of the Triple Crown by winning the Preakness. Obviously, would be the last for many, many years horse to win the Triple Crown. 1983, Larry Holmes retains his heavyweight title with a split decision over Tim Witherspoon on the same day as boxing would give um, Larry Holmes a hard time, the heavyweight champion for many years. 
Uh, they came up with all these different variations of the title, and you know Holmes would relinquish it without having to fight. So one of the heavyweight titles that was on the the docket for that same day, the same day that Holmes beat Witherspoon, Michael Dynamite Dokes against Mike Weaver ended in a draw. Imagine that. You got two guys fighting for some version of the heavyweight title when you have a secure heavyweight champion, and then it ends in a draw. You know what? That's probably what they deserved. Not the fighters, but boxing deserved at that time. Same day, 1983, Steve Carlton passed Walter Johnson to be the number two all-time in regards to strikeouts amongst pitchers. Nolan Ryan sitting there at number one, but there was a part of 1983 where there was actually Carlton and Nolan Ryan and Gaylord Perry that were all kind of in the mix, kind of bouncing back and forth between one, two, and three, all kind of hitting Walter Johnson's all-time record around the same time. 1985, the before-mentioned Holmes beat Carl Williams to retain his heavyweight title. 1988, Michael Jack Schmidt hit his 535th career home run to put him eighth all-time amongst Major League Baseball home run hitters. Obviously, there's been several players that have passed that up to this day. To me, there's no doubt he was the greatest third baseman to ever play in baseball history. Now, I, I kind of have a little bit of a tie between him and A-Rod, but I give Schmidt the advantage because A-Rod was a shortstop for the first decade or so that he played in Major League Baseball. So I look at it, I say, Schmidt's the best third baseman, the best overall third baseman, probably the best power hitting third baseman to ever play in Major League Baseball history. Birthday is on this day of May 20th, Hal Newhauser, two-time MVP of 1944, 1945, 1945 World Series champion with the Detroit Tigers. Great pitcher. Won the pitching triple crown in 1945. Was born on this day in 1921. Um, Hall of Fame head coach Bud Grant. Four times he was in the Super Bowl as the coach of the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, also was an NBA player with the Los Angeles Lakers when they won the championship in, I'm sorry, in Minneapolis in 1950. Was born on this day in 1927. Former Cardinals third baseman, the before mentioned Cardinals. Ken Boyer was born on this day in 1931. Legendary Chicago Blackhawks star Stan Makita was born on this day in 1940 former Yankee outfielder and one of the heir apparents to Mickey Mantle. Kind of a tough spot for him, but he will always live in the life of Yankee lore. Bobby Mercer was born on this day in 1946. So was Craig Patrick, the uh, the forward of the Pittsburgh Penguins, three-time Stanley Cup champion as a player and then as a coach, 91-92-2009. David Wells, Boomer Wells, the not the original Boomer Wells. The original Boomer Wells played with the as an outfielder for the Toronto Blue Jays. Played in Japan in the early '80s. But you know the well-known David Wells, former Yankee pitcher, World Series champion, born on this day in 1963. Terrell Brandon, former Cavaliers guard, two-time All-Star, was born on this day in 1970. And Tony Stewart, NASCAR driver, obviously a many-time champion, uh, auto racer, was born on this day in 1971. Um, the same day, we lost a dominant Cuban baseball star by the name of Martin Dehigo, one of the better offensive position players, even though he was a two-way player. We spent a lot of time talking about Shohei Otani and in comparisons to Babe Ruth. Have there ever been other players to dominate both sides of the ball to be able to 
pitch and hit, and Martin DeHigo was able to do that as well. When I was compiling my top 100 offensive position players, I really, really wanted to find a space for DeHigo in there. Um, just a dominant player, but he was just as good of a pitcher, and because it was such an offensive-centric list, I had to leave him off. But um, certainly somebody that has been one of the more dominant forces and players in baseball history. We also lost Sid Howe, a Hall of Famer, um, three-time Stanley Cup champion in 36, 37, and 43 with the Detroit Red Wings. He died on this day in 1976. Claire B., a college basketball star, LIU, Two-time undefeated seasons in 36-39, NIT championships 39 and 41, passed away on this day in 1983. We lost college football Hall of Famer Billy Kennan, 1959 Heisman Trophy winner on this day in 2018. And also, rest in peace, we lost Roger Angle, one of the better baseball writers in the history of the sport on this day last year. This is the Pass Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in hearing me flap my yap mouth, you could check me out on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and of course videos on YouTube. Until next time, God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Pride was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the friggin' World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. Now they come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude. Flee the dude disguises another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. side of the spectrum they're on. Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if, if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100% unequivocally that pitcher was throwing at They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. <laughs>